Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Nijay with my friend AJ. We're excited to be back for a fourth season or series. It's really hard to know explain how we do these things, <laughs> but we um, we just want to be uh, expressive of our thanks to the listeners. I know it's cliche to say that, but uh, AJ and I both get people reaching out to us, uh, appreciating what we're doing, but also asking questions and uh, responding to what we're talking about and starting dialogue. And what we really want is that what we're doing is is helpful for people's faith, giving them some things to think about, some new ways of looking at uh, scripture and theology and the Christian faith. So we just want to invite you to do more, interact with us um, over social media or, or as you bump into us in various places. Uh, we just are thankful that um, uh, this this yeah. time we put into this, uh, we would feel like it's really resonating with people. So we hope that continues. Absolutely. Um, for this series, um, AJ and I had an idea of um, continuing the theme of faith and doubt, but a specific topic that I like to call the gospel for doubters. Now, what I mean by that is um, many people who listen to this podcast, people that we AJ and I engage with on a regular basis, um, grew up in the church or spent significant time in the church and feel like they've been burned by the church. They've had bad experiences. They've seen civil religion. They've seen the ugly side of faith. They've seen spiritual abuse. Um, Maybe you've listened to the Mars Hill podcast. Maybe you've read some of the books on uh, churches that, that uh, are, are not uh, being faithful to the gospel. And I feel like in those situations, it's really hard to, find your compass, find your way out of that towards Jesus. And I feel like there is so much trauma uh, that people are experiencing around bad experiences in the church that um, people are wondering, is the gospel still good news? Is it good news to me? So I kind of want to uh, launch us off on a few episodes to reflect on that. And before I kind of ask uh, my my partner in crime here, AJ, about his thoughts on this, I want to start out with just a tidbit from Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor and theologian. He talks about, in some of his writings, what he calls religionless Christianity. That sounds like a contradiction in terms. Mm. But what it means by that is, um, in, in the Germany of his time, you can experience Christianity as kind of a cultural phenomenon. Uh, with trappings of steeples and pew Bibles and um, kind of liturgies that we do in politics and culture. And you can feel like you lose the real heart of Christianity in the midst of all this uh, fanfare or paper wrapping of Christian-ness. And you might lose the heart of the faith, um, the the, the real presence of, of the crucified Christ. And so he talks about religious Christianity. He talks about the world will come of age. It's hard to know exactly what he means, but I think he means we know better than just to make God the God of the gaps. We can't explain X phenomenon, so we just throw God into that. But offer says we're going to come to a time in culture where we've come of age, where we outgrow religion. And Bonhoeffer asks, is there a Jesus that's still there when we're over religion? And, you know, AJ and I live in the Pacific Northwest where a lot of people are over religion. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> They're done with organized religion. They're done with Christianity. We're, we're post, post, post Christendom, uh, anti Christendom. 
And I'm not necessarily sad about that, but I want to uh, ask the question, uh, is Jesus still there once we unwrap all these trappings <laughs> of, of religion uh, in the negative sense of the word? Um, what is, I guess the question that we're at is, what does Christianity, what does the gospel mean for people who feel like they've been really burned by the church and some of their Christian experiences? Um, AJ, where do we begin from there? If we start with someone coming into your office, coming into your living room and saying, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I don't know if I can go back to a church. I don't know if I can open a Bible. Um, this is, this is where we begin to think about the gospel for doubters. Yeah. Where do we go? Well, I, I think the first start uh, for us is to uh, begin with this assumption that this ain't the first time in human history or church history where this kind of um, this this kind of yearning for a purified Christianity, as it were, is yeah. is coming coming about. I mean, we could find um, many times in the history of the the church where things like this have happened. No, no doubt, as Protestants, we would we would look at. The, the the story of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation very similar uh, overtones. I don't want to draw the parallels too clearly because they are different, and and it would be pretty arrogant for us to say that we're the Luthers of our generation because uh, we're not. But the truth is, at that moment in history, there was a there was a similar yearning for a return to um uh, to the to the to the gospel. There was a, a longing, and of course, that's Luther's experience of sitting in his tower and reading a little passage from Romans and having this awakening, life-changing experience. And for him, uh, he'd done plenty of religion. He had yet to experience the gospel. He heard it, uh, and it transformed himself in the world. And we have the pietist tradition. We have so many movements in church history where the church has needed to remember the gospel. Now, here's where, you know, as a New Testament scholar, you you can speak into. It, it turns out, right, in the New Testament, Paul is always having, in, in his letters, of reminding people of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, uh, you know, for example, in uh, Titus, uh, uh, he he makes this clear reference, I'm reminding you of the gospel you've already received. No rezo, I'm bringing you back to this, hmm. to this gospel. Now, why does Paul have to remind Christians of the gospel? Because <laughs> there's no community that most easily forgets it yeah. than the church. Yeah. We're good at forgetting the gospel and trading in um, the good news for a set of, of of religious convictions that may be high and mighty and virtuous, but aren't the gospel. Um, but th- I guess what we have built into the New Testament is a purifying, constant reminder, keep coming back to the gospel. So in that sense, Nija, you're talking about what's happening in the Pacific Northwest, which is not unique to uh, our neck of the woods. This is, I think, a global phenomenon mm-hmm. for a lot of Western yeah. people. It would be easy for us to look at all of this sort of uh, the fire, as it were, and say, well, this is all bad. What if, what if this is God's way on some level of burning away dross and bringing us back to, to Jesus? I think that sounds like Paul to me. Come back to yeah. the thing you've already believed in. Yeah, and and um, you know, thinking about Paul and and his gospel, um, you know, he he lived in a time where um, there were all kinds of heresies that were constantly popping up. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this right. before, right? 
But you're right. He's always trying to bring them back to center. And, you know, I've just been working on some stuff on Galatians and he's, he's very quick to say, um, it's so easy to be tempted to follow another gospel. Um, and so you're absolutely right about that. So I think what you're saying is, um, when people come, come to you and say, you know, Hey, I'm experiencing this thing. You don't dismiss it, but you also say, um, this is, this is a constant danger. Uh, for this faith that's been going on for thousands yeah, of years. Yeah, Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis's famous um, uh, idea of, uh, you know, just if something is abused, that doesn't nullify its original use. He, he's at one of his points talking about people overusing alcohol. And he says, but that's not alcohol's fault. Um, the, the misuse of something does not nullify its original use. The gospel has been misused yeah. and, and the church has been misused, but that does not nullify the gospel or the church. It just means that we need to be reminded once again. So I'm sitting here, Nijay, looking at you. We're having this conversation face-to-face, and I'm thinking about sp- very specific people in my life whom I know, if I, who, who are people who, who believe in Jesus, but if I was to have a conversation with them about the gospel, it would be very uncomfortable for them. And I've, I've been wondering sort of why that is uncomfortable for somebody walking through doubt why the gospel is so uncomfortable. And I think I have a bit of a theory. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm listening uh, this week to a, a story. Uh, it was the New York Times did a story on um, elderly homes. And there's been sort of a, in, in the last uh, few years, a, um, sort of the curtain's been torn uh, asunder. And we see that in uh, a lot of elderly homes, people are being diagnosed as schizophrenic, but they're not schizophrenic for the purpose hmm. of um, they're being diagnosed as schizophrenic or psychotic so that they can be given antipsychotic drugs um, as a means, essentially, in the in this particular interview, uh, as a chemical straitjacket, basically to quiet them, quiet them up. Yeah. And the, the ethical dilemma of these these drugs is 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 it, you know, not the ethical dilemma, but the, the backstory is that these drugs are being given not to actually help the person. They're being given to help the people who are giving the medicine, meaning it's, yeah. it's a way for the, the people to, to, to shut people up so that um, they don't have as much work to do or something like that. I'm thinking about the person who has experienced church wounds and church pain and why the gospel may be so hard for them to hear. Yeah. And here's what I think. I, I wonder if for some of us, the gospel was not used and given to us for our benefit, but was actually given to us for someone else's benefit. And what I mean by that is I think from time to time, the gospel has really been used as a way to silence people mm-hmm. and to create fake forgiveness and create a need for you. Well, you're a Christian. You should have to forgive me so we don't have to name sin. Yeah. And in essence, the church too often dispenses the gospel as a way to protect ourselves from naming sin. Yeah, um, and that's a very dangerous posture to to be in, where where we are using the grace of God as a way to baptize sin and say, well, we don't need to name our own. I mean, right now it's at at our moment in history, the sins of the church are on full display. Yeah, you know, and we can use the gospel of, as a way of saying, well, we should all be forgiven, and we are forgiven in Jesus. But the gospel is not a hall pass to not have to confess, name, and confront evil and darkness. And I think for a lot of people who've walked through doubt, they've seen the gospel be misused as a way to falsely baptize unnamed sin. I don't know. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, you know, it does. I was just reading an article along these lines on Scott McKnight's blog. It was a, a contributor named Mike Glenn. And he basically says every generation he sees, um, you know, church planters and evangelists come together at conferences and say, what technology do we need to get people in churches? What uh, what tricks and tips to get people in churches? And, and he basically said he's become kind of cynical about this because um, people, uh, if the product is not useful to people, then no matter how well you advertise it, it's not going to mm, be, right. it's not going to be purchased. It's not, right. people aren't going to buy into it. And, and his point, I think, was, um, have we forgotten the real power, the real heart of the gospel? Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like a lot of the people who are wrestling with doubt, um, I think what they need is a reminder of what the gospel is about. It's not about sitting in a church yeah. every Sunday. Uh, it's about um, it's about encountering Jesus and what He brings to our life. Yeah, could it be possible that one's encounter with the gospel when they first believed that that experience could be different than an encounter with the gospel after you wrestled with doubt? What I mean by that is not that the gospel has changed, but your encounter with the gospel is different because you're different. A great example. So I love my. Uh, every Christmas, every Christmas, it is not Christmas if I do not watch. Um, uh, uh, there's a whole series of Christmas <laughs> movies that I have to watch, uh, uh, but uh, it's a wonderful life to me. Every Christmas, okay. I have to watch it. And every year, it does not matter how many times I've watched this movie, I cry every year. But here's what's different. Here's what's weird is I cry at different points sure. every year yeah. because I'm in a different place every yeah. year that I watch it. And by parallel, when I believed in the gospel at 16 years old, the way I interacted with the gospel as a new Christian was very powerful at that moment. But I've been a Christian now for about 25 years. And when I believe in the gospel today, its impact on me is very different now than it was then. Same gospel, different experience. So what does the gospel actually mean for somebody who is struggling to believe? They may have believed a long time ago, but what does the gospel mean for them today? Let me make one suggestion, and then I want to hear from you. Sure. I think, number one, if we truly believe that the gospel is the good news of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Christ to heaven at the right hand of God on our behalf, when we are walking through doubt, the gospel comes to us and says, do not be condemned by your questions. Mm. Don't live in shame that you wonder that you have moments where you have struggles to believe. That sense of condemnation and inner shame, if we have doubts, can easily push, push us further away. And we need to hear the gospel to us in that moment and say, God can handle our questions at, at those moments in our life. The gospel is good news for us in that. As Len Sweet says, the gospel is not good news unless it is both good and it is news. Yeah. And at that moment, it needs to be news again today, just as you were forgiven for your sin back when you were a kid or whenever it was. You are forgiven now for your moments of epistemic crisis. There's no shame for those who are in Christ. Would you say that's true? Yeah. You know, and maybe the good news for, you know, for people wrestling with doubt is that God is a patient God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that he can handle awkwardness in the, in the relationship. Yeah. I don't know, AJ, how many times I have talked with my students 
about the lament psalms because you brought this up in an episode. You say something like it's the First Amendment. It's a guarantee of the First Amendment rights. Yeah, yeah, Ellen, Ellen, yeah Ellen Davis at Duke. Yeah, that's right. yeah, and and that I I can't tell you how my students have told me that's really freeing. Hmm. Wow, to know that um, they can that God can can be patient. Yeah, uh, that yeah. part of the good news is the patience of God. Um, I you know. I came into the church uh, in a different way than a lot of the people I meet because I didn't grow up in the church at all, um, and I barely stepped foot in a church until I was 16, and I became a Christian when I was 16. Um, and what's really helpful for me when I'm getting lost in the kind of fog of messiness with the church is what really drew me to the gospel in the first place, and that's my own sin. Hmm. Um, now, sin is like one of those terms that is going to trigger people because it's abused, and you know, yeah. you know, the, all kinds of baggage and issues with that terminology. So, I like to use the story of the great physician from the Gospels when I think about why I'm still a Christian after all mm. the difficult things mm. I've gone through in my life academically, studying the things I've studied, and dealing with some family health issues. Uh, I think about the idea that Jesus is the great physician. And when we confess and claim that, we recognize we are broken and needy people. Mm. Um, And so if I'm I'm talking to someone who's wrestling with doubt, um, I'm going to want to emphasize and I'm going to want to talk about the fact that for me personally, um, I can't make it on my own. Uh, I, um, I wrestle with some physical health issues. I, I sometimes wrestle with mental health issues. Uh, I recently, you know, met with my spiritual director. Yes. I've talked about him several times, but I met with him recently and I told him, uh, I'm dealing with anxiety issues yep. right now, pandemic and all sorts of things. And, you know, he, my spiritual director, he knows that I won't see a counselor cause I'm just awkwardly antisocial sometimes. <laughs> and he knows that. And so he said, just buy a book, just buy a book on it and read it and see how that goes. So I did. So now I'm reading a book on anxiety, which my kids find very interesting and entertaining uh, watching me read this book on anxiety. Um, I think it's so healthy for my kids to know that I'm reading a book on anxiety, to normalize that. But that means I'm just keenly aware that I'm a needy person. I remember writing, researching a book on the Lord's Prayer for three, four or five years it was so fun to spend all this time researching just a handful of verses. Yeah. Um, but after all that energy and all that work and all that scholarship and all that reading, uh, if I were to sum up what the Lord's Prayer is about, it's essentially a confession of neediness, mm. that I, I'm, a, I'm a weak person. Mm. It presumes you're going to need forgiveness. Yes. It presumes you need bread. It presumes that you need God's kingdom to come. Yes. Uh, so this one prayer that Jesus gives uh, is a prayer for the weak and the needy. And so uh, in my own heart, I just start there and I think, um, who am I as a person? And, and I realize um, I can't make it on my own. Yeah. And then what the gospel tells me is I'm not alone. And, and I think if you start there, it's a really powerful place to rediscover the Jesus that's there for us. Yes. 
You and I have the same spiritual director. Um, I actually think I introduced you to our spiritual director because we're both train wrecks and need conversation (laughs) partners. Um, But I didn't know this. You were 16 when you came to faith. I was 16 when I came to faith. Mm. Um, I think we both have similar stories. If we were to dig deeper, we would. But here's what you're going to have. You're going to have this experience with your spiritual director because we have the same one. And I know it's going to be the same thing. Is that you're going to go to him, Morris Dirks, who's one of the greatest human beings in the world. Absolutely. You're going to go to him and you're going to find after about 10 sessions that you are saying every session the same exact stuff every time. <laughs> you're bringing the same problem to- I'm Morris. already doing that. Yeah, you're like on session five or four or five, and it's like the same stuff. I can't have a session without with Morris without talking about my own grandiosity <laughs> and my own addiction to praise and desire to want to be wanted. And here's what's beautiful about our spiritual director. Our problems never change. Yeah. Neither do his responses. No. It is the same exact, you are loved and a beloved child of God right here, right now. See the light. God is in you and with you and the gospel matter. Here's the point. If Jesus is the great physician, we're going to keep bringing the same sin to him week in and week out. And his, I think, response is going to be the same. Every time, grace, you are loved, you're forgiven. But thank God that our great physician um, doesn't change his answers for truly humble people when you come. I mean, I, in the, for a doubter, that's tremendously good news. For the, for the person who's epistemically anxious, who doesn't know how to settle their minds, the great physician is very consistent in his tenderness and his love and his mercy. This is good news. It's good news. Yeah. And, you know, I think what you've opened up there is kind of a lie that there are good Christians and there are bad Christians. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who wrestle with doubt are ashamed uh, because ashamed of being around quote unquote good Christians Mm -hmm. because they struggle. They struggle with doubt. Yeah. Um, but I remember a pastor doing this exercise uh, with a group of, of um, uh, church people where he said, if Jesus came to earth today, where would you go looking for him? Mm-hmm. And based on what Jesus does in the gospels, it probably wouldn't be churches, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? He would mm-hmm. be out and about with, with the, the people we least expect him to be out and about with. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and those are the people he wants to be around. Um, and that, to me, is also kind of at the same time encouraging and damning to uh, some of the ways that we uh, that we pretend that we have it all together, and we pretend that we're oh so faithful and oh so smart, yeah. Um, and and that we we continue to reinforce these cycles of making people who wrestle with doubt feel like they don't belong. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm excited for our next episode because uh, I want to talk to you about how we've we 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 tend to minimize uh, the gospel to just a certain idea when it's a bit more expansive. So we're going to keep talking about this gospel for the for the doubter uh, in our next episode. But hey, good news, NJ. Jesus loves you. You're you're a train wreck, bro. And and you're loved. <laughs> Back at you. Br- praise the Lord. I am. I'm praise praise God. Awesome. Thanks, NJ. Great conversation. Absolutely.